This morning I have Darren Orbach, who's in the Department of Neurointerventional Radiology at Children's Hospital in, in Boston. And Darren has authored an Editor's Choice article featured in the May issue of JNIS. The article is Angioarchitectural Features Associated with Hemorrhagic Presentation in Pediatric Cerebral Arterial Venous Malformations. Uh, Darren, I, I really appreciate you spending some time with me this morning. Can you just talk just in, in general briefly, uh, describe the design and, and results of, of your study? Sure. Uh, let me start out by saying thank you for this opportunity. And this study was, I thought, a terrific project that resulted from a visit from an outstanding fellow from Toronto, Mike Ellis, who was able to okay. combine the experience at both institutions, uh, at Toronto Sick Kids and Children's, and uh, decided to analyze the NGO architecture of a relatively large cohort of uh, brain AVMs that had presented at the two institutions. And by pooling them, he was able to look at 135 uh, children who had appeared and decided to look at various NGO architectural features that had previously been studied in adult cohorts and to see if there was some correlation with likelihood of presenting with hemorrhage, specifically in this pediatric cohort. So these were all children. Mm -hmm. And the cohort itself was similar to what has been described in the past, where the vast majority of the children presented at least symptomatically. Only about 10% were entirely asymptomatic. Most of the presentations were with hemorrhage, uh, but there was a fairly high incidence of seizures, uh, severe headache, or other neurologic deficit. Um, and uh, in table one of the paper, we list a lot of the angioarchitectural features that, as, as I said, have been discussed and looked at in adult cohorts, but uh, he specifically looked at it in this pediatric cohort and, and tried to tease apart what may or may not indicate likelihood of presentation with hemorrhage. And uh, in a nutshell, on multivariate analysis, uh, the three variables of all the ones he looked at that were found to clearly correlate with hemorrhagic presentation were small size of the nidus, so that's under three centimeters of the nidus, uh, mm -hmm. exclusively deep venous drainage, and infratentorial location. Uh, and everything else, there were some trends in some of the other variables, but nothing else uh, reached statistical significance. Okay. You know, you mentioned that most of the patients were presenting with symptoms, and there was a, certainly a high incidence of hemorrhage in the cohort. Um, do you think that high incidence of hemorrhage is just an artifact of referral pattern bias, or does it really reflect possibly a higher incidence of hemorrhage in the pediatric population? So uh, that, that's a great question. I think um, I, I don't think it's it's uh, strictly a referral pattern because both of the two institutions have a fairly wide catchment area. So both okay. of us are regional centers and. Uh, pretty much if a child is diagnosed with a brain AVM in the surrounding geographic area, they will likely be referred to uh, us or similarly to Toronto Sick Kids. So I, I think we, sort of, we cast a fairly wide net. I think that um, probably what this does indicate is just the fact that uh, adults 
simply have more years of having their heads scanned for other reasons. So you're going to capture lots of incidental brain AVMs as years go by, whereas when children are scanned, they tend to be scanned for for some reason. And uh, so I don't think necessarily that the biology of AVMs is different in children than it is in adults. In fact, we believe that these are vascular malformations that usually were formed in utero. So the adults who are showing up with asymptomatic AVMs presumably were once children who had asymptomatic AVMs. Mm -hmm. But I think the ones we know of in children, we know of as a result of presentation because of some activity. They showed up with symptoms, whereas adults, we're likelier to know of them for other reasons because they're scanned for some other reasons. Okay, um, I think, sense. yeah, um, I think some of the very interesting recent work that's been done showing some broader vascular genetic conditions that are associated with brain AVMs, like mutations in the RASA1 gene or uh, HHT, which has been known for a little bit longer than that, uh, those imply that there may actually be a propensity to develop AVMs throughout life and not just in utero, and that would sort of change that calculation. That might imply that AVMs maybe have a less benign natural history uh, and that when they, they, they're likelier to cause, uh, they're less likely to sit around for decades and decades without uh, causing any symptoms at all, at least in that patient population. But that's a, that's a tougher question to answer. Yeah, that's interesting. And then as far as the risk factors that came out in the um, paper, it was interesting that previous studies in adults have shown a correlation with associated aneurysms and hemorrhage, and your study really didn't. Mm. Do you think that that's, again, maybe an artifact of patient population, and does it does it affect how you plan treatment for these patients at all? Uh, I think it's it, it was certainly true for both for both of the institutions, and I, it's undoubtedly true that aneurysms associated with AVMs in kids are very rare. We both, uh, both institutions certainly have cases where there was hemorrhage within an AVM with an associated aneurysm, and frequently the hemorrhage was at the site of aneurysm, but the overall incidence of aneurysms in brain AVMs in kids is so low. In fact, mm. the overall incidence of aneurysms even without brain AVMs is incredibly low outside uh, things like trauma or dissections or mycotic aneurysms or things like that. So I think likely it's the case that AVM-associated aneurysms arise from decades and decades of pathologic flow, and in children that just hasn't been the case yet. So they just tend not to arise nearly as frequently, and that's why our study uh, didn't show statistical significance. Uh, okay. You know, just in terms of casual observation, I, I certainly vividly remember cases where the hemorrhage was specifically at the site of the aneurysm, and in those cases we certainly do treat the aneurysm uh, first and foremost and, and plan our treatment around that, but, but it's just mm -hmm. rarely the case. Yeah, it was interesting also the, the fact that deep venous drainage uh, was associated with hemorrhage uh, and was independent of AVM location. Um, I'm not sure the reason for that. I don't know if you have any hypotheses. No, I don't. I, I wonder if that's just due to the fact that even with this combined study with the two institutions, we didn't have the power to show statistical significance mm -hmm. of deep versus superficial nidus. There's certainly a relationship between deep location of the AVM and deep drainage. Um, so if you look at the numbers, uh, there was something like 18 deep AVMs in the, in the cohort and something like 23 with exclusively deep venous drainage. So it's almost certain that most of those 23 
had deep nidus, and you would suspect that if one was statistically significant, the other should be. I, I just think it's uh, that's probably artifactual due to uh, the end not being large enough, even with these two institutions. And I think okay. that's probably one of the messages of the paper is that to really tease out some of these variables, you need truly large studies with hundreds of patients and, and not mm -hmm. even just two institutions collaborating. That makes sense. I mean, we're sort of struggling with that in the stroke uh, population right yep, now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, obviously, Boston Children's, you have huge experience treating uh, children with AVM. Can you discuss a little bit about the uniqueness of treatment strategies in that population? Sure. So we have a very a very multidisciplinary approach here, and I would say the guiding philosophy behind our approach is to be very fastidious about doing whatever we can to get rid of the entirety of the AVM whenever it's mm -hmm. feasible. If you look at long-term studies of recurrence of AVMs or late hemorrhage, uh, that is very rare across large cohorts. But when it does happen, it's overwhelmingly in children where it happens. Mm. And so our philosophy is um, conservative in the sense that we really do our utmost to ensure that we've gotten rid of the AVM. So our protocol consists of an initial discussion, first a characterization of the AVM uh, by angiography and cross-sectional imaging, then a discussion about whether uh, we will do embolization or not, and if so, if we'll do it, if it's a, a more limited embolization that can be done in the same morning as surgery, and then the patient mm -hmm. would go straight to the OR, or if it's a separate session and then uh, a separate resection. And then before we wake the patient up from the resection, we bring them back down to the angiography suite to do an immediate postoperative angiogram. Uh, to verify that the AVM is completely out. And we have actually had two cases where we went back to the OR to resect more, oh. and one case where we went back to the OR t twice, actually, after even after the second postoperative angiogram. And I okay. wonder if some of those cases of long-term recurrence from older studies were cases where um, there, there was not high-quality angiography immediately associated right after surgery. So a C-arm angiogram in the OR may not be as good, for example, in finding some residual AVM. So, and then after that, we always do a one-year follow-up angiogram. And even after that, we were very open with the families about uh, that it's not absolutely impossible that there will be long-term recurrence, and we continue to follow them with MRI. But mm -hmm. uh, at that point, I think we've we've really gone to the max to try to ensure that the AVM is out. And, okay. and then the flip side of that, I would say, too, that goes along with this philosophy is uh, there certainly is a fashion now on the adult side to do aggressive onyx embolization for cure. And mm -hmm. uh, even though I myself use onyx a lot uh, and, and embolize pretty aggressively, we have not espoused embolization only for cure in kids, partly because of what I mentioned before about this recurrence. I think there's likely immature AVM that's not as well visualized that's present in kids. And mm -hmm. um, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable sending a child out for decades uh, if, if, with the, if in the discussion with the surgeons, we feel that we can actually resect it safely. Right, right. That makes sense. And then are there specific things that you do to manage radiation dose concerns? 
Yeah, that's actually a very important topic, and uh, we are actually working on a project right now, looking back at our experience over the last few years. So, so there's there are lots of technical parameters to control, and uh, one can lower the dose significantly compared to prior published studies, for example. And uh, mm-hmm. I hope to demonstrate that. But I think that um, the question of radiation in children is absolutely vital. And there was a a paper published in Lancet last June looking at a a very large cohort of children in the U.K. They have a national registry, and they looked at over 178,000 kids in the U.K. who had undergone just head CTs, and they followed them for over 20 years and asked the question, what was the incidence of brain tumors in that cohort who had just undergone head CTs? And it was far higher than you would have predicted based on the older studies from hmm. the uh, nuclear bomb survivors, which is usually what we use in radiology to predict risk. Right. And if you take those numbers from that head CT studies and instead you insert the numbers we typically give in fluoroscopy with embolization, uh, it actually becomes a huge concern in children. So I think that's, that's a very important issue. And um, again, it's something we're working on now. I hope to, uh, to have uh, out there in the literature in the not-too-distant future. But I think anyone Great. who practices in kids really really needs to keep that as a central focus of what they're, what they're doing. And in the discussion of the overall treatment, it, it's a different thing to schedule a single embolization session versus seven long embolization sessions for a complex brain right. AVM, particularly if the upside is not so clearly defined. Oh, that makes sense. So when Al Cohen and Dodie Robinson were at our place, they're at your place now, um, Mm -hmm. it was always interesting to me that they were very aggressive with acute hemorrhagic presentations. In other words, they would operate um, soon after the hemorrhagic presentation, whereas the, the adult vascular neurosurgeons you know, tended to wait till the neurological recovery from the hemorrhage sort of plateaued. Um, yeah. Is that general feeling in pediatric neurosurgery? Just, I was just interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, so we, um, and then this is true, I think, both uh, before Alan Doty came and, and since they've been here. We typically don't wait until neurologic recovery has plateaued. Um, mm-hmm. I think probably overall kids do recover faster. But um, we would typically wait for the resorption of the initial hematoma, and that's mostly to get a better view of the entirety of the malformation and plan strategy. So I think we try not to operate in the acute setting unless there are real issues about mass effect, and then the goal of that is really uh, relief of of intracranial pressure and, and evacuation of hematoma more than resection of AVM. Uh, and then we would typically follow the patient with a follow-up MRI scan maybe six or eight weeks after the initial event to verify that the clot is resorbed, at which point we would repeat angiography to get a better view and then really plan treatment. And that's sort of independent of where the patient is on the neurologic recovery uh, spectrum at that point. Okay. Your study is really sort of a landmark as far as looking at pediatric uh, AVM patients and defining you know, the angio-architectural features associated with hemorrhage in that cohort. How would you envision you know, a future study designed to really better tease out the natural history in the pediatric yeah. population? Um, I think uh, the most concrete thing is uh, what I referred to before, which is uh, to get 
good numbers, I think you really mm. have to pool many institutions and start to get to cohorts of hundreds and hundreds of patients. Um, because even two large high-volume centers uh, just leaves a lot of things that are suggested but not statistically significant. So that's sort of a very concrete thing. You, you then, though, run into the issue of different approaches and maybe different populations and a heterogeneous cohort, so that, that becomes mm -hmm. difficult to manage. I, I'm actually um, mostly overall a fan of the Aruba study, and I do tend to mention the study to patients although I'm probably biased in that I'm probably mentioning it um, a little more uh, actively in the patients where we probably can't offer them easy treatment uh, right. than I am in the patients we can treat better. So Aruba is likely to recruit patients with tougher AVMs. Uh, but I think that that kind of prospective data is really invaluable. I think all of us treating AVMs are operating a little bit in the dark uh, mm -hmm. in terms of comparing natural history to all of our interventions. Uh, one thing I would hope for in kids and in adults as well would be uh, I, there's been a fair amount of work already on the NGO architecture, and you know I think we can do some more with larger cohorts, but I, I think we're sort of approaching the asymptote there, and we're probably mm -hmm. getting to the point where we're maxing out on morphology. I would hope that there will be novel imaging techniques to look at AVMs in a, in a very new way, uh, whether that be measuring flow or stress on, on vascular walls and things like that, and look at those as markers of likelihood yeah, of, of hemorrhage. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's you know, clearly for the future. That's not um, anything that's available now. Right. You know, I did have one other question, I guess. You know, I know that your study used the Spencer-Martin grading system. In general, in your institution, is there a feeling, does that grading system apply appropriately to surgical risk for pediatric, you know, because it's sort of based on adult population? Uh, you know, I think elements of it do. As as the patient gets younger, it becomes a little harder to define what eloquent brain means, mm -hmm. and the plasticity is remarkable, uh, especially when you get down to, to infants. Uh, so I think that um, the specific location, at least within the hemispheres, uh, tends to become a little less critical in young infants than it is in, say, teenagers and certainly mm -hmm. in adults. The other things like the size of the AVM, I think, are relevant at any age. Uh, so I, I think overall it remains a useful scale in kids. I, we don't we don't perseverate a lot about the specific number on the scale. We talk more about mm -hmm. the individual features, I think, in our discussions about particular cases. Okay. Well, that's all the questions I had, Darren. Anything you would like to add? Uh, no, I, I again want to thank you for the opportunity. I think it's great to get attention focused on pediatrics. Those of us who, who practice in kids uh, are faced all the time with a real lack of, of studies and low numbers and whatever studies are out there. So a lot of the work is extrapolation from adults, and, and a lot of the conditions are quite different uh, than adults in, in really every facet from the natural history to uh, treatment risk and outcome and, and all of that. So I think anything that can be done to get attention focused on, on these conditions in children is, uh, is extremely useful uh, to the patients. Well, I appreciate you spending time with me this morning, and congratulations on this important study that you, you've accomplished. Thanks so much again. I appreciate it. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.